Welcome to the Westside Investors Network, WIN, your community of investing knowledge for growth. This is the Real Estate Professionals Investing Podcast for real estate professionals by real estate professionals. This show is focused on the next step in your career, investing. Thank you for listening. And please, if you like our content, rate us on your podcast provider. And now your hosts, AJ and Chris Shepard. In this episode, Jay Hendricks will be joining us to talk about real estate development and his knowledge in private lending. Jay is the owner and manager of JLH Capital Partners and has been involved in hard money lending and residential development for many years. He talks about the stigma of using hard money and what is a good structure to use it for. He provides insight on what to consider before lending money, especially to those who are new to real estate investment. He emphasizes on the importance of learning the industry, how to build a good track record, and establish the right connection to people. Enjoy. I am pleased to have Jay Heinrichs on with us today. He's a longtime investor. I spent some time in Portland as well. I know he's doing some sub-developments now. And Jay, just super excited to have you on and appreciate your willingness to share your knowledge with us. You want to kind of introduce yourself a little bit more? Sure. appreciate it. Thank you for having me on. Always looking to support these channels. I think they to the folks that get to watch them, they bring a lot of value because you can, you know, interview all sorts of different people and different ideas and real estate, if it's not anything, is it's there's not one way to do it. And you can learn a lot from people's different methods and the way they put their deals together. But for me, I'm just, you know, I started in real estate as a real estate salesman at 18. My dad talked me into doing it. A little rough in the first two or three months. I couldn't make a sale. But once I got that first sale and that first commission check, I kind of never looked back. And then right at 20, I got my broker's license and pretty much always worked independently. I didn't work for big brokerages. I specialized in selling ranch land and vacant land in Northern California from Napa, Sonoma, Lake County, Mendocino County. And what I liked about it was that almost all of it was owner carry type stuff. And, you know, when you're 20, 21, 22, the the idea of long escrows and having to go through appraisals and all that stuff was not exciting. So I pretty much just concentrated on, on, on selling dirt and did pretty well at it. From then, I moved back to the Bay Area. I was living up in Lake County at the time. Moved back to the Bay Area and got on with a big syndicator, what you would call a syndicator today. And they had projects from the Bay Area up into the Sacramento Gold Hills area. And I did land acquisition and ran a couple of big projects for them. And that was a really good incubator into dealing with investors. And because they had a lot of them, about 5,000 of them. So when we would get a project and I was the lead on the project, I would make the presentation to the investor group. And, you know, this is what we're going to do. And, and I liked it. You know, we raised a lot of capital at that company. When you first started talking with those investors, did you get like butterflies in your stomach kind of getting up in front of all of them or? Well, I didn't have to do the first round of it. They were already kind of set up. A lot of them were already invested with the company. So this was just the next new deal. And, you know, to say I wasn't nervous isn't correct, but I, I was able to do it, you know, and I enjoyed it. You know, I made a lot of great contacts. And one thing about being in the real estate business and or, you know, raising capital for deals is you're going to meet a lot of very interesting people. And and a, lot of, a lot of characters, right? Yeah. And some you're going to connect with, others you're not going to. And, you know, so some of them have been lifelong 
friends and investors for me, others come and go, but that kind of gave me the ability and what investors need and expect from, you know, the syndicator or, you know, the sponsor's point of view, because there's a definite learning curve and things you have to do if you're going to be managing money for other other folks. For sure. Communications being one of the, the great ones. So I did that and then what, and they bought a hard money lending company, which was a company I introduced them to. And I knew those folks. I had actually interned with them, you know, in, before I got the job with them, I'd worked with this hard money company for about a year, just kind of mentoring with the owner. So I put the two together. That company was, the owner was older, bad health, no children, no secession plan. So the reward for bringing that in is they basically made me a owner and president of the company. It was a, you know, the company had already been going for 30 years. So we had a big stable of uh, hard money investors. We probably had 250, 300 clients and about $50 million book. And in California, you did what's called fractionalized mortgages. You would do, for lack of better words, it's like a tenant in common on the debt instrument. So we would get our loans and then we would get on the phones and say, okay, we got a $300,000 rate caster first in Oakland. How much of it do you want? And, you know, one guy would say, I'll take 50, I'll take 80. So in California, you kind of, in the day and still to this day, you can have about 10 co-beneficiaries on a loan without being a security having to okay. do the PPM stuff. That kind of sounds like the Wild West. <laughs> well, it's legal in California. Let me tell you, I, I did it in Oregon and didn't realize that I got in major trouble in mm-hmm. Oregon because <laughs> it's not legal to fractionalize mortgages in Oregon without a PPM. But I just figured it was legal in California. It must be legal there. So I got my hand slapped and was my only blemish on my record of 45 years of doing this. So then I end up coming to Oregon, got in the timber business, loved that. We were buying and selling timberland, kind of melded my days of selling ranch lands in Oregon. I hooked up with a logger. I didn't really know anything about logging. Turned out, you know, properly done. It's a big money business and we're all about that. So we did that for about 10 years and that partnership kind of just faded away. And then I, I jumped back into hard money lending, started another hard money lending company. And at the same time, we were using some of our logging proceeds to buy little subdivisions in and around Oregon, mm-hmm. uh, mainly Yamhill County, Washington County. So I'd always have a subdivision going because that was kind of my original background. When I was working for the syndicator, I was running their subdivisions. And then we ran the hard money company up until... 2008. And I found myself in, you know, everything I had worked for all those years, basically ready to ride off into the sunset. Like you hear everybody talking about, you know, I mean, I just, I had it whipped and then it all came crashing down. So I spent three years detangling myself from all the deals that I was in, was able to get out of everything without doing any kind of reorganization or bankruptcy. All my secured lenders got paid back. All my banks got paid back. And in reward for that, coming out of 2013, 2014, my banks were taking back REO property, my main bank, and they started feeding me, feeding me the deals. Oh, that's good. 
Yeah. So like they gave me, I was able to buy 40 lots up at Hood River and they gave me the construction loans to build them out. And we did really well. We did another 30 or 40 in the Portland metro area. So that's kind of how I kind of morphed into building. They, they probably approached you because of your previous track record with them though, right? Well, yeah, I, I was the largest borrower at the bank at yeah. that time. And yeah, that you, was, you ended that up was making on, good on all, everything from 2008, 2009. Yeah, we paid everything back. Yeah. And so, wow. because that's what happened to a lot of the builders when they had no choice and had to reorganize, the banks just couldn't loan them any money again. So that's where moving forward into the hard money, that's why hard money became so popular, a rebirth, if you will, from 2013, 2014, because most of these guys that had used banks couldn't go to the bank anymore. And so you had really top shelf borrowers needing to use private money or hard money. And that really exploded the hard money business. And then a lot of the bigger, some of the bigger funds got into it. Some of the bigger brokerages were able to tap into large credit facilities from Wall Street and other, other areas and, you know, grew some pretty, pretty big hard money companies, you know, Lending Home, Lima One, Conventus, Civic, a lot of them California-based, Lima's out of Carolinas. So they've got very large facilities of investors and cheap money, and then they're able to reloan it out to, to folks. That's kind of my story. And then I bought this in the last five years. I did three subdivisions out in Gresham of 25 to 30 houses each, kind of one each year, uh, 18 months. And then I bought one in Canby, Oregon, which we're doing now, which is 90 lots. So we're about halfway through the first phase of 30 lots. We got 20 of the 30 houses sold and probably 15 of them under construction right now. Great. So, wow. yep. That is a quite a track record, Jay. Very yeah, impressive. That's, that's, yeah, that's 40 years condensed into five <laughs> minutes. And a lot, of, a lot of trial and error, a lot of this works great, this doesn't work, a lot of, you know, it's like the log market. If it had stayed the way it was in 95, 96, I would have never left it. But, yeah, right. but the big money was made in exporting logs, especially to Japan, and then the J- Japanese economy crashed and then never came back. Right. Yeah. Well, and yeah, markets, negative interest rates. Markets yeah. change too. And you got to be able to adapt along with what's going on in the market. Exactly. So, and that's kind of like what I tell my, you know, I have a small staff and I said, you know, what we're doing now, three or four years from now, we won't be doing that. We'll be doing something. It'll be real estate based, but it'll be something completely different or something new. You know, had I gone into the, you know, residential rental type business or apartment business, probably would have stayed in that because that's, you know, it's just rinse and repeat. You're doing the same thing over and over and over. Mm -hmm. There's not a lot of different angles to go at it. And I did try, you know, buying a bunch of single families out in the Midwest. I had like 300 of them and that, that was untenable. I couldn't. Yeah. the, The management of it all. Yeah, it was very, very difficult. I can see it for the, you know, the smaller investor that's, you know, going to have 10 to 20 and it's what they do and they've, they can be on it every day. Mm-hmm. And, but, you know, I've, I've got, you know, multiple businesses going all within real estate and to be staying focused on 
you know, did that pay, tenant pay me on this property in Indianapolis? Yeah, you know, we know the story. We we run a property management company, and it's yep. it takes a lot of attention. So, kind of going back to the beginning of your story, you mentioned that your dad convinced you to become a real estate broker, and I guess I just want to dive in a little bit there more into how you got started and you know what what your dad or or your parents taught you and how that like opened the doorway to you becoming a real estate investor a very successful one so yeah well my dad was in the land business he was a land salesman and if you've ever seen the movie Glen Gary Glen Ross that <laughs> that that was him sitting there in the no coffee <laughs> I mean, he was Jack Lemon, and he wasn't Al Pacino, but he was one of the top 10 salespeople. And he started with Boise Cascade in California, where they had all these projects. And he did well enough to start his own land, you know, land lot business. So I kind of, I grew up in that side of it. Okay. Um, so that's why when I, when I started in the real estate, I understood that. And that's why I liked the land business, because the you know, again, there was no appraisals. It was all owner financed. So really all I had to do was find a a willing seller and a willing buyer and I had an escrow and I could close it. So that's awesome. Yeah. So you, you started off like being a, a real estate professional and then you were able to bridge the gap into becoming an investor. What do you think enabled you to, to bridge that gap? And then what, why do you think that you know, most brokers or other real estate professionals, property managers, mortgage brokers kind of stay in their regular job and don't move into investing? Well, I think there's a couple things. One, getting on the investment side of it, keep in mind, I've, because of my background with the, the syndicator, I was used to pooling investors. It takes a ton of capital. So, you know, I just didn't do this on my own. You can't earn enough money on your own being selling real estate, generally speaking, to become a massive investor. You can start small and over time you definitely can. If you buy in the right places and you, you know, you buy your duplex and hold it and then sell it and buy your fourplex and and if the market's good to you and you got a big equity and you keep rolling them up, you know, I think with a lot of the folks that are in the mortgage or real estate business, they're just busy doing what they're doing. And if they're making a good amount of money, you know, it's typical American way. They, they spend it, you know, <laughs> in their lifestyle. They buy a nicer house, nicer car, nicer trips, all that kind of stuff. You know, they're making enough cash flow. I mean, you know, a lot of good brokers that have been in the business for any length of time, you know, the majority of their business is referral. So it's, it's not like, it is like passive income for them. It's something they already know how to do. It's transactional, but, you know, they put a 10 hours into a deal and make a $15,000 commission, you know? Right. And so when you look at, okay, I'm going to buy a rental house, I'm going to tie up all this cash and I'm going to make $300 a month. You know, it's like, there's not enough reward given the time and effort to do it. You know, others are like, you know, I'm going to get it paid for and that's how I'm going to retire. And so, I mean, that's the only thing I can think of is it's just, it's just not, they have other ways to make money. It's you not know? sexy enough. 
<laughs> it's just they have other ways to make money and they're not interested in it. It's just yeah. just like me. I tried it and I was I'm not interested in it. I have, you know, three or four little rentals, but they're all class A type stuff that's paid for. And, you know, right now I'm more focused on just making cash and banking cash and then, you know, diversifying that into either the stock market or, you know, loaning it to people. I like I like being a lender. Like being a lender, yeah. So when, private lender. When, when did you first start buying real estate just in, in general? Like when, when did you make your first? Um, I probably, you know, I was working with my dad. So we did it kind of as a family, right? So yeah. it would have been day one at 18. Okay. I, mean, I bought my first house in Malpitas, California when I was 19. That was the best thing I ever did. The market jumped. I bought it in 79 and by 81, the house had gone up. I paid 84 and I think it went up to like 140, sold it, bought another one. And then I've done that, you know, like four times on the West Coast where each of the homes we bought have gone up, you know, close to a half a million dollars. Yeah. So been able to sell those and, and bank that tax-free money. Yeah. So stay in it two years and use that exclusion yeah. and, and bank yeah. that money tax-free. It, it, That's it's, great. It's taken more than two years. It didn't go up that quick, but like my house in like Lake Oswego has done that in six or seven years. Yep. You know, I got a question for you. So say you're in, you know, you're back in your 19, 20 year old shoes and you don't have a lot of capital, but how would you use those resources to like get into a deal or what would you do to get into a real estate deal? Well, you know what we did, we were just buying inventory. So we were never holding anything. So we bought our inventory at tax sales and foreclosures and just off market, you know, direct mail back in the day. Yeah. You know, and it wasn't really direct mail. We would just go to brokers and say, okay, we, we want to buy there. And then the brokers would send out the direct mail and then they would bring the deals to us. Kind of like modern day wholesalers, you know, go to a wholesaler and say, I, you know, I'm looking for this inventory here. You know, there was no wholesalers back in those days. Yeah. When you were putting buyers and sellers together where you weren't, actually like transacting and holding the property though, were you? No, we weren't. We were, we were, you know, we'd buy a, (laughs) back in the day, you know, we'd buy a small parcel in Northern California for $2,200 at the tax sale and sell it within four months for, you know, 14,000. Yeah. Do, you know, five of those a month and you just don't need rental income when, you you know, at that point. Printing money. Yeah. When you're doing like the hard money loans today, are you finding that people are putting the the property in their name and then like adding some value to it and moving it on? Or like what what sort of hard money deals are you looking at and how they structured? Yeah, hard money is almost all, it's all value add. It's either value add, sell retail or value add and refinance and pay us off because you can't be borrowing money at hard money rates and keeping it as rentals. Yeah, You have to, you have to exit it one way or the other. You either have to sell it or you have to refinance it because they would, they'd be huge negative cash flow if you just, you know, nobody gets, not nobody, but very few people get a good enough deal to have a 12% mortgage on your property and, and the thing's going to cash flow. It's going to be negative by a bunch. So there's a, especially among real estate professionals, brokers, property managers, like there's a little bit of a stigma when it comes to hard money. Like, 
you know, oh, you know, only the most desperate investors use hard money. And, you know, AJ and I have both utilized hard money recently on deals just because it makes it so much easier to get into a property and then get it refinanced out. You've got that much more time. But being a, a hard money lender yourself, what do you think is like why there's such a stigma to it and you know how hard money to me is is a tool that you know is potentially a dangerous tool if you use it incorrectly but if you use it correctly you can do some pretty amazing things with it so what do you think well, it is about hard money that makes it you know such a scary thing for people who don't know about it well one they don't really understand the full scope of our financial system, especially like in a place like Portland, you're not going to walk into a commercial bank with no experience with them, not known to the bank and say, I want to borrow money to go flip this house. I know my bank, my banker, they won't take on anybody like that. I'm not sure. I'm not sure if they'll take on us right now either. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I know what I have. That's a, diff- the- that's a difficult proposition. <laughs> yeah, but you can go to some little, you know, farmer bank in Shelbyville, Indiana, and if you have good credit known in the community, they'll lend you money to buy that kind of stuff. Yeah. So when you, especially like on a bigger pockets forum where everybody, well, I'm getting a bank loan over here for that. Well, that's, they're in a different part of the country. And those small banks will do those kind of loans for their local folks. In the Northwest, you're going to be far and few between the people that can go in and borrow money to rehab houses from a bank. That's what's made this huge vacuum that the bigger hard money companies have been able to come in and fill. I mean, they for all the fix and flip funding and stuff that goes on, I bet the hard money companies do 60, 70, 80% of all that, all that business. Yeah. And a lot of it has to do with what I was talking about is back in 08, where a lot of these guys, you know, they filed bankruptcy because they were sitting on so much inventory, they had no choice. And, you know, the banks have long memories, right? Mm -hmm. So, and it is an advantage for us because I I can borrow from the bank, but I also borrow from hard money. I borrowed from Lima and I've borrowed from Iron Bridge and, it just depends on where it is and how quick you need it. And, you know, the banks you have to go through, you know, more hoops for sure. But the hard money lenders are not. Most of them will underwrite you pretty hard too. And then they, they base all their rates on experience. How many deals, first thing out of their mouth is going to be how many deals have you done? Yeah, for sure. And a lot of them won't, hard money lenders won't lend to anybody that doesn't have experience. Having experience is definitely a big plus. You mentioned that like a lot of hard money deals almost always require value. I think some of our listeners may not exactly know how hard money deals are structured or like an example of like a really good hard money deal. Do you have some examples of like some really good structured hard money deals that you've done in the past that worked out well? Yeah. So we'll take new construction. You know, there's a few of them that will do new construction. Mm-hmm. You know, the only reason you're going to do a new construction generally for retail purposes is you're going to make a profit. So you're able to put your, this is how much my lot is. This is how much it's going to cost to build it. Here's what the value is when I exit. And with my cost of capital, I should be able to make X amount of profit. So 
you know, they're going to underwrite it and make sure that there's profit at the end of the, the table. If you're going to do it to like an apartment complex or something to hold or a duplex, fourplex type situation, it's the same thing. You have to be in the hard money loan cheap enough or so that when you do get a rate and term refinance, which is usually going to be 70 or 80% of ARV, you know, you don't have to come up with a big wad of cash to close your loan out. So when you say in the hard money loan cheap enough, do you want to expand on that just a little bit further? Yeah. What I mean is you're in the asset in the project with enough equity Mm -hmm. that you don't have to come up with cash to refinance. So if you're, Takeout lender is going to do 75% ARV minus cost. You have to be able to be in your project around 70%. Otherwise, including your fees to your hard money lender. Otherwise, when you get that 80% loan, right? Or you have to have, once you've done all that work to it, the value from what you paid for it and your fix up costs jump up exponentially to create the equity so that when you do the refinance, you're not coming up with a lot of cash. And that is where the market's very tight because there's such a demand right now for rehabber houses that a lot of times there's just not a lot of equity in them. Um, yeah. You can't buy them cheap enough. And a lot of that is because of this, you know, the wholesaler situation. You get a guy in there that comes in the middle of it and he's trying to de- drag 10, 20 grand out of it. Well, that's your equity you need to get your value add. And so that's why I see a lot of the wholesaler deals come through. They get re-advertised, re-advertised, and they never close because there's not enough equity. Yeah. If, if the borrower was actually going to do the deal, was getting it for what the hard what the wholesaler was going to pay for it, they'd probably work. But by the yep. time the wholesaler adds on their fee, you know, it doesn't work. The, the numbers just don't work. That makes so, sense. Yeah. So usually... The rates right now are a lot of the lenders are 90% loan to cost, 100% are rehab, total loan can't exceed 70 or 75% ARV. So you just have so to when you say in. ARV, you're, ARV, you're talking about the after repair value? Right, after repair value. So you just have to back into it, right? So a lot of guys, here's what happens with people that are not all that experienced at this. They'll get a deal and the wholesaler will say, oh, you can buy this rehab house for $300,000 and it's $40,000 to rehab it and it's worth four hundred. Oh, there's $60,000 spread. Well, mm-hmm. by the time you pay for capital and taxes and insurance, the time it takes, there is not a $60,000 <laughs> spread. And if you're going to retail it and then you have a commission on top of it, all of a what? sudden you're 60. So they're advertised, oh, make $60,000 on this. Well, day. and it retails for 400, but it actually sells for 385. <laughs> Minus commission. Yeah. It's, and so you, you'd be shocked on my side of it when you actually run the math when these people bring this stuff to you and they're going to make five grand on it and they need to bring in an extra 50 grand to close. Oh, you know, crickets at the other end. They just don't do basic math or they're, they're they don't understand the, you know, it's just not $60,000 worth of profit. Is that, is that maybe why some people have the stigma about it is like these inexperienced people have been allowed to take out these loans and then 
all of a sudden at the end of the deal, they're, they're staring down the barrel at actually owing money to the project. Oh, no question. And the money that they owe is their equity they put in it. They just lost money on the deal. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, we, all, we all lose money in real estate. I've lost a ton. And if you haven't lost money on a flip or a potential BRR means you're either smartest guy on the planet or you haven't, haven't done many. <laughs> right. <laughs> You haven't done enough volume to have that bummer because we all have bummers. I mean, it just happens. Yeah. So what the lenders do is if they tighten up the criteria, the first person to lose when the deal doesn't work right is, is the borrower, their equity, whatever 10% equity or 20% of cash equity they put into it, that gets absorbed first. And then if that's, that's really bad, that's gone. And then the hard money lender, depending on who they are, is like, well, you personally guaranteed this. We're going to sue you. Yeah. So and then the, the, not only like, you know, having the project go wrong or like some metrics be incorrect, but like if the project ends up taking more time, that can really like cut into your profits too. Because oh, yeah. I mean, look at Portland right now, trying to, get, trying to get permits in Portland. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's forever. I would. They're like three months right now. <laughs> yeah, I, I've had ones that are just going on. I mean, way longer than that. Yeah. You know. So yeah. So timing. So you got to be very careful if you're going to use hard money. You got to make sure your numbers and your crews are ready to go, and you know you have good controls over the money going out. I mean, same thing. If you've done any kind of volume, you know you've had a contractor screw you, steal your money. I mean, it just it just happens. Would you have any suggestions for people to get into deals without using hard money, or bef- like what to do before using hard money? Well, yeah, cash or capital partners, and just have no debt. And then if the deal doesn't work, well, okay, it didn't work. That means the capital partners didn't get a very good return, so they probably won't do another one with you. But you don't go in the you don't go in the hole. Yeah. I mean, a lot of the wholesale deals I see come through Portland, you know, they may work if you have cash. And there are a lot of investors out there with cash, right? And they'll do the deals, you know, to keep their crew, you know, they're maybe they're more of a construction company and they do it to keep their crews working and they can cover their crews and they can put, you know, 300 grand out on a project and still make 30 or 40 grand. You know, it's okay for them. Yeah. But once you start borrowing money or bringing investors in, you need bigger spreads. Speaking about bringing on like financial partners, have you done any joint ventures or brought on partners with anything recently or anything that you can share Um, with listeners? Yeah. The deal I did in Canby, you know, to get bank financing, we had to have a ton of equity. So we paid cash for the dirt and I raised private money for that. So we, we did a, a small PPM with six or seven investors and we raised 6 million in cash paid cash for the dirt. So we have no debt on the dirt. And then that allows me to get the best bank rates and the minimal amount of debt against the property. Because I don't want to, three years ago, four years ago in Gresham deals I did, we were able to highly leverage into those. You know, one deal I did, let's see, there's 30 houses there that were 400 each, so what, 12 million. We did that with 500,000 in in cash. Wow. Twelve million dollars worth of gross sales. Wow, that's like a five. No, so what's a, what's different today? Today they're just you know COVID happened, and for me when I set this up, 
you know, we had a little bit of a blip there in 2018, 2019. That's when I was putting this together. And I didn't know which way the economy was going to go at that point. There was that little time where four mm-hmm. or five months where we're like, okay, the bubble's really going to burst now, right? And it didn't go that way. So I didn't, you know, I probably could have done that deal with maybe $3 million in cash and borrowed, had a land advance. But I always wanted to be able to, so as we're building through this, the first phase has debt on it, but my 60 other lots are sitting there all free and clear. Yeah. Right. So having lived through 08, so I'm not going to juice up my returns like the apartment syndicators do where you have total, and you can with that because those are income properties. It's a comp- something completely different. But in the development business and the house building business, in my mind, you got to have true equity because if you do have to hold something, you're going to be in trouble if you've got a bunch of debt on it. So if, if I build these 30 houses out where 20 of them are sold already and, you know, something hits the fan next September, we'll be out of, the, I'll have 60 lots, but there'll be no debt on them. Yeah. And you'll be able to hold that for yeah. the long haul until it comes back around. Yep. At the worst, it's 20 grand a year in taxes. Yeah. So for somebody starting out new, you'd mentioned, you know, finding a financial partner. And I know that you have talked a lot about becoming an apprentice, a real estate apprentice. So how would you suggest maybe a, a real estate professional, a broker, or a property manager who hasn't done any deals, but you know we've piqued their interest and they want to get into doing some of their first deals, but they don't have that capital and you know, they, need, they need to join venture to get that's it done. A great, that's a great question. And you know, it just flashed into my mind, especially on the PM side of it. You're already in contact with all these people that already love real estate, mm-hmm. have rentals. Seems to me that's a pretty fertile ground to go and say, <laughs> as long as it's not a conflict of interest, you know, because I do know other really big PM companies, you know, six to 10,000 door kind of guys, and they don't do any brokerage sales, any form of competition with their clients, you know. But if it's not a conflict of interest and you want to to do that, it seems to me, you know, you would just have constant contact with your owners and be able to put together a, a project and explain it to them. And this is what we found and this is why we think it's good. And it could be a good diversification to, you know, what you already own. You already like us as a management team and we're going to be the ones, you know, moving forward. So it seems to me you got it almost built in as a property manager. That's great as, a real, as a real estate broker, same thing. It depends on what you're brokering, who your clients are. You know, I was fortunate enough to be in the Bay Area, lived in Palo Alto for eight years, sold property. A lot of these guys, you know, I drive up to their house in Los Altos Hills and, you know, the guy owns a software company is worth 50 million bucks in the day, you know, back in the 80s today, it'd be half a billion or a billion. And you get to know them. And they're like, they're looking for guys that are active and looking to do deals. So as an agent, you know, it depends on, you know, who your clients are. And the same thing, though, if you're an agent concentrating on selling income property, you know, you're already dealing with people that want to own income property. And, you know, you put together small little syndicates, as it were, 
and they like you and people will invest with you. You know, they trust you. That's great advice. Comes down to trust. Comes down to trust. Yeah. Track record and trust. Yep. The more the more you do, the more people are going to trust you, the more that they're going to refer you and it just it snowballs. And then the other way people starting out is, you know, friends and family. You know, you yep. go to your warm market first yep. and work out from there. And then if you're successful and lucky enough to have a good track record, you just start building on your track record. Yeah. This is what I've done. We always I've say that this is this is not a get rich quick business. This is building no. slow and let it grow. <laughs> yeah, not in not in the rental side of it for sure. And the folks that I know and that you know, and I've got clients that own a lot of you know apartment complexes in Portland. They have other businesses, and they don't need the money out of these projects to live on. It's just extra income for them and a diversification and tax write off and stuff. Nice. Like that. Yeah, Jay. We kind of like break down you know what mode of life you're in and sometimes we're talking about okay are you trying to make income or are you trying to invest income and then are you in a wealth creation mode which requires a lot of income and investing that income or are you in a wealth preservation mode where you have done most of the work and you're just trying to protect what you have most of us spend most of our lives in the wealth creation mode but that kind of totally fits in line with what you're saying about your friends who own apartments and you know they're just investing in those apartments while they're still creating that wealth through their income yeah the, letting that's them exactly grow. Right. that's exactly right and it's only out in the midwest and certain areas where you know you have folks that and you see that if you follow the bigger i quit my day job and i can now what live on my rental income you know, mm-hmm. that could be done when you're in low value asset areas where you're buying assets for very, very low amount of money and high rental. And then that's their new job is running and chasing all the rents, <laughs> right? But it's pretty hard to, to do that in the, on the West Coast because of the cost of the property to begin with. And how do you get, and you're, you know, you're not going to get, take, $200,000 and create, you know, $20,000 a month of net, net income. to live. And plus, usually out here, it costs us a lot more money to live, basically because of our, yeah. our housing and whatnot. Yep. So. Well, I think, can we get into our, our last four questions here? Yeah. All right. So our, the first of our last four questions is, what's one piece of advice you would give to your 25-year-old self? Well, <laughs> hindsight is twenty twenty, but... I think that's the point of this question. It's like, <laughs> what, what piece could you give that would just completely change what you did? <laughs> for well, the better, for the better. <laughs> yeah. Well, for me, it would have been never selling any, all the real estate I owned in the Bay Area. One. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Two, a couple of the ranches I bought in Oregon, if I just kept those, or deals where I went in and I could have bought the land real easily, but. I just, oh man, I can log it. I can make 150 grand, you know, in, in six weeks. But had I bought that ranch, it'd be, you know, <laughs> I would have done a lot better. So, you know, buying and holding certain real estate in high appreciating areas and not, not selling them. Yeah. You know, but that's, you know, who was to know? Yeah. You know, who was to know? 
So, yeah, that would be for me personally, and that's just a West Coast perspective. That's a great piece of advice, buy and hold. Yep. So when you were growing up, what was your first entrepreneurial endeavor? I guess entrepreneurial would be selling Fuller Brush door to door. That's what I started out in, you know, because you're you're self-employed and you're doing it on your own, Mm -hmm. knocking on doors, trying to sell $8 $8 hairbrushes. <laughs> <laughs> how, how, how young were you when you started that? I was about 14. Yeah. Know, 13, yeah. 14. You know, yeah. I'd pump gas, I'd bag groceries, you know, I'd done all the stuff kids do. Did you take anything away from, you know, that experience when you were 14? It probably helped me when you asked me about, do I get nervous in front of people talking? That probably helped me because you start banging on the doors. Well, you, you don't <laughs> know who's going to answer. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, some of the people are nice, some are not. And, you know, you couldn't do that today. You know, you can't, you know, and then, you know, I did a lot of, you know, just selling real estate at a young age and meeting all these different people and all these different personalities, you know, was a great incubator for me. That's I awesome. can't, with a, with a lot of people that are trying to, get into the real estate business. I do believe getting a real estate license and working in some form, if you want to be in the investment side of it, working with a commercial broker, I see some of these people, well, I don't want to be, I just want to be an investor. But I think if you at least get the license, you can still be an investor. It's not that you can't be, but it teaches you all the laws and the, the terminology. And then the people you meet you know, go to your office meetings and you're meeting already successful people yeah. where you're doing it on your own. You're kind of out on an island, right? We're, we're of the same advent. Like we, you know, really promote getting your real estate license. I mean, it's, it's free, it's education that you should know anyway. And, you know, whether you keep your license up or not, like going through that task and like getting through it, it's kind of like, I'm not going to say it's like college, but I mean, it is like, you know, you have to get through some amount of information and make sure that you're at least reasonably knowledgeable in, in real estate. So well, we, just, just, we always well, just knowing the terminology. Yeah, for sure. Well, our next question is, is how has your formal and informal training shaped your journey? Well, I don't have a lot of formal training. I tried college. I didn't like it. I got my real estate license at 18. I graduated high school a year early and went to a year of college. Didn't like mm-hmm. it. Got my real estate license. So I don't have a lot of formal training and everything that I've kind of learned has been on the job. Yeah. So I would say it's majority is is informal. I think being somewhat outgoing and not afraid to talk to people and networking and whatnot is a, is a good skill to have for growing in the real estate business. Yeah. It's like my dad used to say, it's a belly to belly business. It's, it's changed a little bit now where guys doing deals on the internet, you never meet them and all that stuff, but it's still, you know, I still go to lunch with my banker every six weeks. Well, COVID, not as much. But, you know, we're, you still network with the key people in your, you know, that are helping you get to where you need to be. Yeah, it's very much a relationship business for sure. Yep. Well, awesome. Okay. Our final question. What was your Moby Dick of real estate? The one deal that you wish you could have done or just the one that was so close, but it just didn't happen? Well, I've had many of those, unfortunately. <laughs> I think the one I'll pick is when I was working for the syndicator, because I had a background in selling land, we put together 
phase five of Lake Wildwood Estates in uh, Nevada County, California, by Grass Valley. It was 540 lots. And even back then in the late 80s, the lots were worth 100 to 150 each. Mm-hmm. So I got in, I got a 10% ownership interest for getting it through all the entitlements. And I did the first Melarus Bond Act. Californians will know what that is. Oregonians won't. I did the first Melarus Bond Act for the developer, for the owner in Nevada County, $10 million bond issue through my contacts that I'd gotten working with my dad. So I got 10% ownership in the project. I was getting one of the best lots in the project for free. And I got the listings on all the lots at 15% 15 gross list price. And I had all my land salesmen that worked in and around with me over the years. I had about five really good land salesmen that are going to work underneath me that I would pay 7% to. So I was going to make an 8% commission on every lot that went out. So like 10 grand. Mm. And there was 540 of them and 10% of the net profit. And I was probably 32 at the time or so. And I had them all pre-sold. We had had them all out. We had in California, it's called a pink sheet where you can take reservations. Had them all reserved, every single one of them. We had hired Pacific Kiwit to come in and build the first phase. They did it. It's all done. And the earthquake happened and the war happened and we never closed a lot. Oh, not one. And the guy, the developer I was working with, lost the whole project of foreclosure. Wow. So I lost my whole, and I worked on that on the come for like four years, getting it all together. He paid me a stipend, you know, so I could live. But Mm -hmm. the big money was going to be my interest in it. Yeah. On the exit. That would have, you know, buy your private island. (laughs) Yeah. And so. So that had happened, and that's what kind of sent me to Oregon, you know, in the timber business because my real estate deal had just cratered on me my whole life. I mean, that was a whole life-changing event because I would have lived there, and I'd probably still be living there. Yeah. It's a a great testament that you kind of picked yourself up by the bootstraps and then just started something not entirely different, but like adjacent and and made that work. One of the reasons, you know, I'd always been really conservative. So even when that happened, I didn't, and I had made pretty big commissions selling them other deals. Yeah. So I was living at Palo Alto at the time. I didn't have, I had very low amount of debt on my house and big equity in it. Even in 89, 90, the houses there were worth half a million bucks and I had no debt. And so, I mean, I was about a year with what am I going to do? And I'd ran into this guy from Tillamook was telling me about the logging business and that's that's how I got into logging. What year was that? 92. 1992. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so like 91 was a year of a year of just trying to figure out what the heck I was going to do. I didn't really yeah. work for the year. Wow. But I was able to make it through because I was just I didn't have any debt and you know, I could live on nothing at the time. So that would be it. That would be that, it. That, that definitely others. qualifies as a Moby Dick. <laughs> that, that was it. Thirty-two years old, and I had it. I had the world. I mean, it was just going to be. Yeah, had it by the tail. <laughs> I can imagine, like before that deal going away, like the grin on your face. You probably were walking high. So by two oh eight, you know, we had again thirty, forty million dollars worth of real estate. Most yeah. of it 
and we had a almost 20 million out in hard money loans and when all that cratered so it wasn't the first time i'd had you know this really upsetting thing like setback business yeah so that kind of helped me get through the 08 to 2011 you know debacle good jump back on the saddle yeah yeah so just trying to trying to get to the end here and the canby project if it keeps going like it is we're going to do very well on it good got some other things got some long-range options on some property in hillsborough so we'll bounce back well awesome well, Jay, we really appreciate you coming on and chatting with us. Like it's been a it's been a pleasure talking with you. You're a, yeah. a staple yeah, in the real estate industry. We we know that you've got a ton of experience and just really appreciate you, you know, coming out and talk, chatting with us. Yeah, my pleasure. And when we get back to when we can go back to restaurants or whatever, come and check out your brewery. Yeah. Uptown uh, Miracle. Jay, just really want to say how thankful we are and how thankful the community is you know, how much time and how willing you are to share your experience. It really means a lot to everybody. So yeah, I just can't say it enough. So thank you. Well, it's my pleasure. I enjoy it. And if anybody can pick up any pearls of what we've talked about, then, you know, it works. I'm all just do good, clean business, be honest, you know, you got to be that way with investors, be very communicative with investors. It doesn't go well, own up to it, you know, that kind of thing. Yep. When it goes well, brag, you know, you can send out your, your brag sheet to your investors. Brag, brag, yes. Look at, look at what I did. But, you know, you got you to gotta also own it when it doesn't quite go right. So well, This is true. Well, thank you again, Jay. Okay. You guys have, have a great day. day. All right. Cheers. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Real Estate Professionals Investing Podcast on WIN, your community for investing knowledge for growth please take a second to rate us so that we can get more great investors to interview. If you or someone you know wants to be on, please go to westsideinvestors.com and fill out our form.